Hi everybody, my name is Paul Dorsky and I am from the Everything Horror Podcast and we are here with the lovely fiance, Tessa Baker, and also with the co-assistant, Mistress of Salt, Christelle Lovello, and we have a special guest with us today for all the way from uh, the Netherlands of the dark side of Europe and all the goody goodness is uh, Wari Brewster from Heck Media. Hello Wari. Hey there, Paul. It's lovely to be on the podcast with you. Hey, guys. How are you all doing? Hope you're doing well. We are doing fabulous. So fabulous. And I think Crystal's got, like, so much salt that she needs to engulf pretty soon, but that's okay. (laughs) I need need more salt in my life. I haven't had enough today. I have salty popcorn I'll share with you. Oh, jeez. Give me high cholesterol. I love it. Oh, God. All right, Wari. So for the first question, buddy, we have, so how did Hex Media come to life? How did you first start Hex Media? Uh, right, well, um, that's such a deep and existential question, Paul. Oh, no. How did I even begin with that one? Oh, no. Well, <laughs> well you know, like yourself, a uh, big fan of horror and fantasy, and I've always loved cinema. Um, where I live in Scotland, in the UK, it's quite a blue-collar part of town, and so the idea of doing film is not something that would normally be considered a real career. So it took me a little while uh, to get into film. I was really by my late 20s, um, and the, the idea of Hex Media was really to try and create something that could bring back to life what I enjoyed most about films I watched when I was growing up. And these were generally horror films produced by Roger Corman, like his, uh, for example, like his Edgar Allan Poe adaptations with uh, Vincent Price and Hammer, of course, um, and Amicus as well. These films really captured my imagination and it made me think, would it be possible to bring back uh, independent gothic horror films and, and to be honest, more you know, widely ranging horror fantasy above you know, or beyond even that. But in the, in the model of films that were produced by Hammer and AIP, these are films that are produced on fairly low budgets, but get international distribution. So it's the idea that could you make a company that can have creative independence and a direct relationship with folks buying movies, you know? Um, and that's, so that's what Hex Media is, and recently uh, Hex Media has evolved into Hex Studios, uh, which is part of an expansion of our company, uh, which has seen us purchase a 300-year-old church, which will become a film studio facility here in the UK and a base of operations. Although the folks that work with us are from around the world, as luckily that's where all the horror fans are, all around the world. <laughs> That's not a bad thing. Um, so, you do we, I kind of screwed up the beginning here, but that's okay. Trying something new here, because I figured the first question kind of uh, helped kind of answer it anyway. Which normally, uh, Wari, I try to have who, uh, who we're talking to uh, talk a little bit about themselves for a minute. But um, uh, if you would like to say who you are real quick so people uh, who are listening down the road in the future uh, know who a little bit more about who you are. Um, it, that's fine too. It's, otherwise, I'm pretty sure 
the questions I have here might um, answer like who you kind of are in general, maybe. I mean, I could be wrong, but um, if there's anything you would like to add for like an introduction to who you are, you can. Um... Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, okay, so I'm Laurie Booster. I'm a horror director. I work in collaboration with Sarah Daly, who is my partner as well. So I'll work as a director and as a film producer, and she'll work as a script writer and often as a production manager or assistant director. And together we work as a really close team trying to make horror fantasy films. And with us as well is Michael Brewster, who is my wonderfully and perfectly creepy little cousin who is brilliant at VFX and does a lot of the post-production stuff with us. And I mean, myself, I've uh, directed a few films, uh, horror films I've directed before include Lord of Tears, sometimes known as the Owlman, which features uh, probably one of our most popular villains, which is the, the Owlman. And also I directed The Unkinds of Ravens and The Black Gloves, which is our latest film uh, that is uh, currently available. I've worked freelance on a lot of films as well uh, as a producer. Um, film is something that uh, is an industry I've been working in for about eight or nine years. But before that, uh, I was originally uh, going to be a church minister, funnily enough. Completely different career, you know, from what I'm doing now. And in between that and film, I've worked as a... Uh, as a, as a journalist for a little while, as, as a writer, and even as a, an actor, though I was terrible as an actor. So that was the end of that. I managed to bring the spirit of Puss in Boots to Macbeth, which is never welcome in any actor's career. But it was during all those, all those times that my interest in film and perhaps my limited options finally giving film you know, the only option to me <laughs> allowed me to, to go for that. That's pretty But cool. yeah, if you want, but me as a guy, um, I, yeah, I'm a horror fantasy nerd, really. I love, uh, I love gothic history. I love occult history. I'm very open-minded about the limitless possibilities of the universe. And I love that to be the, the possibilities that our films explore. You know, that's the cool thing about horror fantasy. It's a window into the limitless possibilities that are out there. And so that's what drives me. Storytelling and weird exploration. I like it. And that's, um, so real quick, so I found you actually last year, Laurie, for the first time on Kickstarter for the Black Gloves because I've never heard of you guys before. So um, I'm trying to remember now when that Kickstarter was. It was a while ago. I do remember that, and I'm just like... Black Gloves. I'm like, what is this? Owlman? Like, what? And then I come to research you a little bit more in your company and, um, or studio, I should say, and then I noticed, like, you had two other films besides the Black Gloves, so I was just like, ah, screw it. I'll, I'll check them both out. So I bought both of them from your website and, um, we, me and Tessa, we watched them in the course of a weekend, I believe. Mm -hmm. and holy crap pretty good pretty good stuff that that we like anyway so I mean I know anybody here listening to you will have probably different things like <coughs> crystal um different taste different taste and horror which is fine which is fine because that's what makes us all different 
Um, so, but I also noticed too, you use Kickstarter for all your films. Yeah, the I mean the, the great thing about Kickstarter is it allows for situations like this to occur by producing films in collaboration with folks who have the greatest passion for the horror genre. For example, take yourselves all participating in a podcast and trying and making a cool show. These are that's the kind of passion and energy that is essential for the successful growth of the horror genre and its rejuvenation as well. So Kickstarter is a big part of, of what we do. Our films um, wouldn't be made if it wasn't for the support of folks like yourself and your good wife. And sure, we, we get investors, we do business stuff as well, but it does also rely on the Kickstarters. But at the same time, we, we love the Kickstarter experience and from it, we've built relationships and friendships uh, over the years which make our company, I guess, a kind of grassroots horror company that really sees itself as embedded and a part of the grassroots horror community rather than something which is way off, you know, like um, like a corporate kind of Blumhouse production. And you're not likely maybe as much to speak to certain folks or, or to really get involved in helping make the film happen. You mean like with restriction too, right? Because... I know how U.S. has a lot of restrictions versus, uh, I think you said Scotland in the U.K. or, or something. I think that you mentioned somewhere in a, uh, behind the scenes something about how like you guys have a lot of freedom. Uh, in Scotland, was it? What is Scotland? Well, that's it. I mean, I'm not quite sure exactly what you're referring to, but what I can say um, is that um, I think I think I might know what you're touching on. The the normal commercial marketplace doesn't have a very open mind about the type of stories or films that are made. Um, there's a reason why uh, most fans' favourite movies are all films made 20 and 30 years ago. <laughs> you know, over time, the freedom available for the financing of independent genre films has become less and less. And so it makes it all the more difficult for original films to get made. And the marketplace itself as well is a lot tougher for filmmakers to make recruitment or, or profit or anything that makes filmmaking very sustainable. So using things like Kickstarter and building radically different kinds of business models are essential for independent filmmakers and for fans of horror. Um, if what they want is unusual films that might challenge them at times or but might also delight them, with films they would never have got from a corporation, say like Lionsgate or Blumhouse or Disney, <laughs> you know? Okay. One of you guys can, girls I should say, can uh, have the next question that I have. Well, let, let me just put one final thing. Um, for example, if we wanted to make a commercial feature film, it would be like a PG-13 uh, jump scare filled idea premise pitch to Blumhouse and you know you could engineer that if that's the film one wants to make you could get corporate money for that um, but it still takes a year and a half of your life it's a long investment to make a film for me that's not so so great but safe but with a film like the black gloves that's something I know that a corporation wouldn't invest in 
that wouldn't make possible. But what's exciting is I can still make that film because Paul decided to invest in it instead. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's and that's why these films can happen. So it's thanks to guys like yourselves. Um, why the name change from the Owl Man to Lord of Tears? Well, uh, the original name was Lord of Tears, and then it became Owlman, and then it became Lord of Tears. But um, but yeah, it's it's kind of a it's, it's one of these reasons that are actually really simple in the industry, but they just seem bizarre and complex to anyone trying to figure out why. Why would they do that? Um, I work in distribution. Our company distributes a bunch of movies, um, and distributors always love changing the names of films because the two most essential elements for selling a film is the name and the poster, not even the trailer, you know? Uh, so anyway, or, or the key art, as we call it, you know, it might be a thumbnail, for example, that you would see on Amazon Prime, you know? So anyway, um, Lord of Tears was the name of our film, and, and this is the real name, if you want to call it that. It's a reference to a biblical quote that refers to the creature in the film. And, and it's kind of cool. We liked it. Um, the Owl Man, though. Right, so we released this film called Lord of Tears, and it did quite well. But when we were promoting the film with uh, Owl Man prank video, the prank video became a lot more popular than the film. And people enjoying the prank video weren't thinking, oh, that's Lord of Tears an ancient quote that refers to a Mesopotamian god. You know, they were thinking, hey, it's the Elman. It's <laughs> So you can either name your film with an obscure religious reference, or you can name it to what, you know, people know and love. Uh, we had fans getting tattoos of the Elman who hadn't seen the film. And that's cool, you know, the, the fact that as a monster, it captures their imagination, that is fine with us. So we were toying with the name change. Um, but in actual fact, it was another distributor who works with us sometimes uh, called 88 Films, which distributes products primarily for retail in the UK, although they do some kind of cool uh, Blu-ray editions of horror films, a bit like Arrow Films does or Scream Factory, it's that kind of thing. So when they got the license to sell Lord of Tears and basically the UK equivalent of Walmart and places like that, there was no way they were going to put it on shelves with a name like Lord of Tears. You know, they want a picture of a big owl monster and they want to call it the owl man. So we were like, okay, we could still sell our version of the film as Lord of Tears, which is what we did, and they sold it as the owl man. Um, but then when we put Lord of Tears on video on demand, which is like Amazon Prime and all that, we thought, you know what, they've probably got a good idea about calling it the Owlman, so we'll call it the Owlman 2 on, or, or the Owlman on, v, on VOD. So just to make things even more confusing, we did a special edition of Lord of Tears where the film got basically retreated, restored and fixed up, and then we released that as Lord of Tears special edition. So in true and utter confusing fashion, there is now available a film called The Owlman and a film called Lord of Tears Special Edition and a film called Lord of Tears. <laughs> but you know what? It's that kind of crazy shit that makes being a fan of films interesting anyway because it gives you an excuse to try and figure out what the hell is the story with that? 
normally it's only Italian horror films in the 1970s that have these weird name changes, so it makes a nice change, you know, we're bringing it back. <clears throat> when I was looking for your movie on Amazon one time, that's why I kind of wanted to ask you that question, because I first saw The Owl Man, and then I saw The World of Tears, and I'm like, what's the difference? Yeah. <laughs> what's the difference? I mean, the, the difference now is that Lord of Tears is, in my opinion, uh, I would say better, much better, because when we, um, well, when we produced The Owl Man, although it was, really, it was a really popular indie cult, horror movie which was amazing i mean it created so many opportunities for us so it was unbelievable um but it was made at a time when we had like no virtually no resources and very limited technical equipment so there would be things that would be happening for example with like the coloring of the film and things that weren't a reflection of what we originally intended plus when we had a chance to revisit the film uh, we had learned a lot more um, about what had worked with the original film and what maybe hadn't worked as well. And so we thought, well, let's re-edit it a little. We added some stuff in and we took some stuff out. And then with the, the re-release, we packed in about in four hours of extras as well. So it was a really cool release. Um, I would say the difference mainly is that your legs will get less numb and wiggly watching the new Lord of Tears. As they wrote the original Owl Man, but you know, <laughs> I like it. Your legs will get wobbly, almost like you're drinking. <laughs> uh, and with that, was the take idea you were trying to go for. Then, whoa, <laughs> uh, Crypto, you got the next question. So, how did you come across the legend of the Owl Man? Well, um, the legend of the Owl Man, when we there wasn't really a specific legend that pertained to our realization of what would become known as the Owl Man. Um, like when we were creating this figure, um, we never thought like, yeah, it'll be the Owl Man. Like one might think, okay, let's make a horror movie about the Cat Man or the Deer Man. You know? It's like, yeah, we can make this really special slow burn horror film called Dog Man. <laughs> head of a dog. You know, it's, it, it, um, the the Elman came about um, from a number of different ideas. Um, some of them are weird and some of them are more obvious. Uh, so the Elman, spoiler alert, um, is based on an ancient god. But that ancient god is manifested in religious history as a bull. So we didn't want a giant cow, you know, a cow-headed villain chasing people. That would just be ridiculous, you know. So we're like, damn, okay. We like that some of the ideas about the god, you know, it's a god of child sacrifice and occultism and, and the grants wishes. You know, that's really twisted and dark, and it could make people do horrible things to one another and really test the audience as well about what kind of moral decisions they might do if they were given a wish. So that that idea was cool. Then we discovered that some esoteric cults later worshipped the god in a different form, uh, similar to the way uh, Minerva's owl, a Greek god of wisdom, was worshipped. That is commonly depicted as an owl, which you can see on the dollar bill. It's this kind of a common occult symbol, but a kind of you know fairly mainstream one that's added into you know added into everything you, you use. Um, <laughs> 
so okay that's that's cool but um but the, there was other ideas as well more simple ideas like we love the idea of an immortal stalker you know this kind of dark figure but we were there was it was hard to try and think of what that could be um one of the things that i really liked was the uh very modern horror villain the slender man thought so that was cool um that the idea of the slender man that i liked was this kind of long elongated limbed kind of guy in a dark suit um but it didn't really have a mythology although it's got a lot of fan fiction and it goes in all kinds of weird and different ideas um but funnily enough one of the biggest visual inspirations was actually a really weird victorian christmas card which had a pic- it was like a snowy field with an owl wearing uh, like a Victorian tail suit, which is what I always wear, you know, it's like a tail suit. And it, on the card, it also had deer antlers. So an owl head with big deer antlers as well coming up. And he was kind of supposed to look cute, but he looked kind of terrifying as anything does that's over 150 years old seems to. Um, but those, those were the main ideas. Creepy Christmas card, general idea about something that we liked about the Slender Man that evoked in us, and then ancient religious uh, history relating to the god Moloch and Minerva's owl. That's pretty cool, because Owl the Owlman, the Owlman was my favorite thing out that whole film. Like, I love the concept of the Owlman. He was my favorite character out of the, owl, out of the Owlman, Lord Cheers. That he was my, I told Paul and Tessa, out of everything out the film, the Owlman's the coolest thing. I love the Owlman. You mean you didn't want an action figure of the character James? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just gonna be nice about that one. He, he comes in a variety of frightened poses. You oh, <laughs> dad, pensive. <laughs> I, told, I told Paul and Tessa, I go, I can't take the lead actor seriously. Every time he gets scared, I laugh. I can't take him serious. I mean, but, the, the 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 thing is. People always have different reactions, though. I mean, like with the with the character of I think it's Jamie. Um, like, if you enjoy the film, if you like the film, then you're buying into something that the film is stylistically expressing, which is that this is a guy who is effeminate. He's vulnerable. He is he is kind of emasculated as well and that's not common in conventional genre storytelling or horror storytelling this is this is a guy that is subversive some people might react to that by finding him funny but reacted um in a way that more relatable to him well put it like this no one can say that there isn't a part of his weakness that doesn't connect with them and people have all sorts of ways of reacting to weakness um and then of course you know sometimes it is with with humor sometimes it's with you know getting angry there was a lot of guys that were really angry about that character because they were like you know i would they, they were just they, they wanted to kick his ass because he was so weak and they were imagining themselves being a lot more you know uh confrontational in the story but that's that's kind of the thing is playing with um is you know well what can you really expect you know this really i mean lord of tears of the Alman at heart is a really sad film 
about someone that can't overcome what happened in their childhood in a way that you could relate to things like people that have suffered child abuse and things like that, you know. He also wasn't someone that ever wanted to grow up, so there's a kind of Peter Pan thing. I kind of wanted to create a character that would challenge people because he wasn't heroic and and kind of get them to think about him. But at the same time, we'll surround him with some, you know, simpler characters and some kick-ass characters. I mean, take, for example, the Evie, you know, played by Alexandra Hume. I mean, like, we present her as a bit like a kind of manic pixie girl, you know, like, I'll make all your dreams come true, and I love you, and, you know, she's like the, the dream girl for every guy. Like the Too good to be fan. true kind of girl, in a way. Well, I mean, like, to me, she would be the, un, you know, the impossible kind of girl. I mean, she'd normally be referred to as the kind of manic pixie girl. You know, she's too good to be true. There she is, like, and she's magical, she's immaculate, she's into him. You know, obviously we know eventually that there's, like, this connection between their characters and it's all, like, you know, twisty and everything like that. But at heart, it's the idea for the audience, especially for males who form the majority of the horror audience, um, that here's your hero and he's a bit like a kind of weedy guy, a bit like... The guy inside <laughs> a lot of the guys watching it that they wouldn't want to admit is really what they're like you know inside and then you have this girl who is like totally into them and it's like oh you know there was guys that hated um how that character would be kind of squealish with delight but they would be the first guys to be like that and it's what makes it more subversive when she changes when she becomes you know horrible and you know perverse and everything like that you pay fan service with this manic pixie girl and then you pull the rug away and it's all the harder for it. And because he's such a sensitive main character, it's all the harder because <laughs> because he's in tune with his emotions and he can cry like a bitch when he's scared. <laughs> yeah. Hey, not many men will do that. I will give him that. And, and it, it is refreshing to see a guy that actually shows his emotion because most of the time they do show guys on horror films and they're all brave and heroic and, you know, they fake confrontate the monster but he you know he he tried to avoid it he was terrified i guess i'm so like i don't know how to put it so used to watching horror films over here to where it's just they don't show that kind of emotion so when he had to go oh something like that and get freaked out i'd be like <clears throat> yeah okay but what you have to consider is um that feeling that anyone has when they're when they're growing up and they're allowing themselves to be open to the possibilities that might exist be it supernatural cosmological you know anything when you're a kid whether or not you believe in anything it's an attempt on the film's part or the story to create that sense of awe and wonder that that we have and that's that's a tricky thing to do and a lot of audiences it takes extra effort on their part and imagination to open themselves up to those kinds of feelings and possibilities they would have had as kids growing up. Because for a long time, modern horror, it's only in the last few years that this idea of the slow burn and creating awe and wonder and bringing you back to being a kid again, you know, uncertain of things is becoming more popular. Because normally horror is entertainment only, wish fulfillment, gratification, and it's served on a plate. 
you know, and well, horror doesn't horror should aim to be more than just that. It should always have that because I enjoy those films as well. But because our audience has been so used to not getting anything different, it's, it takes that extra effort to kind of come around and play with them a bit. I like it. I can respect that. All right. Um, so now, Wari, we're going to go into your second film now, The um, Unkindness of Raven. So I'm glad you said that was my second film and not the thing I made with my cell phone in Toronto Airport, the restroom. That was an embarrassing film. Wait. <laughs> there were, what? Yeah. <laughs> my eyes got oh, big. Yeah, I was yeah, like, I was like, what? <laughs> yeah. Wait, what? Wait, what? <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's it's my horror. Wait, what? Um, <laughs> all right. Uh, the question now is, uh, when you were when you were or uh, whoever that was writing it, um, did you ha happen to know someone that was actually going through the PTSD? Yeah. Well, uh, all my horror films are are produced in collaboration with Sarah Daly, so we're very much uh, equal partners, really. As a producer, um, I'll have concepts and general ideas, and so will she. But um, she'll write the script, and and I'll work with her as a producer, probably saying things like, oh, can't we have more guys die? Or, <laughs> and then she'll make the characters sound human. So anyway, in respect to The Unkindness of Ravens, yeah, I mean, that is a, 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 horror, a psychological horror film that, that explores the idea year of post-traumatic stress disorder in the life of a military veteran and yeah in terms of exploring that issue of PTSD um, we did work with veterans before and during the film and during, uh, before the film me and Sarah we had uh, produced some video workshops which were designed to train military veterans who had uh, left the army on how to use cameras as part of a project for them to record their experiences of military service. Um, so we were inspired by their stories uh, to look at this issue further. But at the same time, you know, that is, whilst that's an issue, we're horror fantasy filmmakers. So there was other ideas at work. There was some cool stuff from Norse and Celtic mythology, which really played into the idea of survivor's guilt, which was one of the issues that these veterans had. And that part of mythology which tied into Survivor's Guild was a kind of forerunner to the Valkyrie, which we, you know, we think of Valkyries from Norse mythology, we think maybe of sexy blonde ladies with silver armor. Um, but the, <laughs> the version before that was that they were kind of a lot more demonic and monstrous and were related to crows, uh, such as the Morrigan in Celtic mythology. But the general idea as it relates to Survivor's Guild was that the Valkyrie's role was to, to decide who lived or who died in battle on the battlefield. So we thought, wow, so the Valkyrie would be a great metaphor for survivor's guilt if it's this entity. And there's a demonic version of the Valkyrie before it became humanized that we could try and bring on screen as, as something we could tie in with ravens and crows, which were part of the mythology as well. So that's how Duncanus the Ravens was born, and that's why we have, I guess you could call them Raven Warriors, um, though we 
kind of like they have this weird name they're called the servants of annihilation uh, which is part of the extras and there's a huge amount of like creepypasta about them in videos and on our youtube channel as well as the extras on the blu-ray which really go into their origins and connections with one of our other popular characters the hellman <laughs> they they share a part of the same universe and we're big believer in universe building really because we're big fans of Lovecraft and we love the kind of Cthulhu mythos and things like that and we thought well so so you go on Paul sorry I'm, I'm going on aren't I no no you're oh, fine we were, we were, I'm, learning, I'm learning a lot so yeah we were we were just smiling because uh our next kinda, couple of questions actually have, coincide uh, yeah, you can answer our next couple of questions for us yeah <laughs> So, yeah. unless you want to elaborate more on these questions, that's always good, but if yeah. not... No, you go can... ahead. You can, you can shoot them over, and if I can, I shall. Um, and if I can't, I shan't. <laughs> okay, well, you were already talking about them, but what inspired the Raven Warriors? Yeah, like I say, it was Norse and Celtic mythology, uh, the idea of survivor's guilt, and how it related to PTSD. And in the film as well, I mean, we do try, we, we, we understand as well that PTSD is something that affects more than just military veterans. Yeah. You know, civilians affected by war or people in their daily lives get PTSD from accidents and all kinds of stuff. So in a way, the film pays tribute to them as well as to some really cool Celtic and Norse mythology and stuff like that. I will say this. I absolutely love the unkindness of Raven. Like, I loved it. I loved how you guys portrayed the survivor's guilt and the PTSD and the warriors. Hands down, that was my favorite film I got to watch for yours. I loved it. Like, there's no complaints about that movie. It's not because you don't have a tiny little crush on Jamie Scott Gordon, is it? Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. His accent is very attractive. You can tell him I said that too. Just a little bit of crush. <laughs> but that was the movie. Just I like how you yeah, portrayed it. I loved it. I loved the whole story. I like how he overcame his PTSD and survivor's guilt at the end. It that story just I don't know. It just was really well. It was really well written. Really well done. A plus 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 on that film. Hey, thanks, man. I'm really glad you enjoyed that. And you know, it's funny because a lot of people really wanted um the ending to be downbeat and it was like what would be the point like what what kind of tribute are you trying to pay to people if you then make out that you know it's futile really strange um but yeah we knew that if ultimately that i mean the idea is that this is something that he's that will still always be there but that he can learn to master it you know, and, and survive with it. And if you're going to have what could be seen as a happy ending on a horror film, then you've really got to make your character suffer all the more <laughs> because of it. And so that's you got to make him work do. for it. And he definitely worked for that happy ending. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's the, the other side of my uh, horror filmmaking. I like um, gothic and romantic stuff, but I also like, on the other side of the spectrum, um, violent folk horror and cosmological horror and stuff like that. 
Um, it's more of an influence from like a lot of 70s cinema on those things, and then the gothic stuff is like 60s, 50s kind of stuff. Um, and that's the great thing about film, is that you get to kind of take turns at it. Um, uh, the, the Black Gloves is very much, you know, a totally different kind of thing, and we'll talk about that later. Um, same with my next film as well. Um, but no, honestly, see if I was one of these filmmakers, though, that just made the same film all the time, like the same style, and that was like my house style type thing, that would be depressing. I'm too much of a fan of the diversity of film to kind of follow one direction too much. And uh, I love, like, um, I mean, some of my favourite horror films are things that are really explicit and extreme kind of stuff, uh, as well as stuff that could seem like it was made by kittens, but it was so <laughs> creepy and weird that it gets inside your head and, you know, it's all the more powerful as well for it. So. I dig that. I respect it, and I agree. I mean, before it's so... Even to Horror is so diversified, and, and I appreciate that you just don't stick to one kind of type of horror. You ch switch up and change your movies. It keeps people on edge, and it's something fresh and new, so someone can go back and say, all right, he did this, but now he's doing this. You know, now we, what, what do we have to look forward to next time he makes a film? So it keeps your audience, you know, captivated on what you're going to do next in your next film. I mean, the, the thing is, as well, it's not even just for the audience's benefit. You see, and... Um, and, and this is a this, this might sound pretentious. I'm going to warn you now, Paul. Prepare yourself. Um, <laughs> what? But a film. I mean, making a film takes about a year and a half, maybe a year if you're really lucky. And so it's a lot of time. You're going to spend countless late nights. You're going to go through hell and back to try and get the thing financed and made. So if the story and if the film isn't stimulating for you as an artist. Um, if you're not prepared to pull every kind of favour and miracle you can to try and get a film made, then it's, it, it seems impossible. Um, the exception to that would be if you're doing it by the numbers, you're getting paid, so you can then just put out what you think audiences want. Um, there's a lot of producers, a lot of companies, where the lists are quite arbitrary. Four nude scenes, ten killings. You know what I mean? Five with explicit practical effects you get lists like that for films that are financed in conventional ways um but anyway um yeah i want to keep audiences stimulated but the best way to keep audiences stimulated as well is by making sure that that filmmaker or is for filmmakers to make sure that they themselves are producing films that really artistically and intellectually stimulate themselves and when i say intellectually stimulate themselves that doesn't mean that it has to be a kind of fancy intellectual film. You might be intellectually stimulated by making the most exciting slasher film ever made. But if you don't try to create something that is like, you know, art that really inspires and excites you, then it will show on screen as tired or emulative. And so, so yeah, audiences deserve to be stimulated, but filmmakers have really got to take that challenge themselves. And too many of them at the moment, unfortunately, even among indie filmmakers, are taking this emulative route where they think by copying a film that they've seen, um, rather than just immersing themselves in weird shit to get some ideas, that they'll maybe get successful quicker. And it's not. I can agree with that. I mean, it's, it's your job, but if you can't have fun doing your job, 
and if it doesn't keep you entertained or you stimulated, then, you know, it's really not worth doing anymore. So I can agree with that. I mean, I hope you continue to stay stimulated with your films because, like I said, I really enjoyed The Unkindness of Ravens, and I did enjoy The Owlman, you know, so I hope I mean, you look, continue. You guys will know that I'm not stimulated if I'm making films that seem really lame, but I seem to be posting more pictures of things I've bought on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> Keep like, going. Hey, wait a minute. Why is Laurie making this PG-13 horror film about a middle-class family that's just moved into their new home? <laughs> oh, no, not another medieval horror movie. Please don't. Don't do it to me. <laughs> but I'm posting lots of pictures of my new car, you know? <laughs> oh, my what are we doing? badge at Blumhouse, you know? Oh, no. <laughs> what, are we, what are we trying to do now? Like an MTV, uh, oh, man, Chris? what was yeah, MTV Cribs now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh man. Um, no, Ari. Uh, back. I want when I'm trying to remember now how long it's been. It's been probably like almost three years, and um, I actually was in a short uh, horror film, which I will send it to you um, in a message after the interview. But it's called Dead Static. It is based on three uh, real haunted locations here in Vermont, and we just kind of took, like, what people have seen or felt or whatever, but we kind of turned it into a twist with it as well. So, like, I mean, just doing my tale, which took about three weeks, I know it's not that long, but, like three weeks for us but I mean I don't know how many how many times we had to sh reshoot a scene or something or just get that long scene correct or or how many changes we went through which I don't know how you direct like how many changes you got to do when you direct because um, I know some people when they direct they do like um, maybe a few takes and then they move on to the next but like I just remember maybe doing about seven or eight takes per uh scene i mean yeah that's um well most of most of our feature films they'll be shot on location for about four weeks um and even then the shooting ratio is quite small it's normally two or three to one even so um and that's, that's just because you have to keep moving really fast also, though, depending on the actors you're working with as well, I mean, like, I've been lucky. They've been able to nail their material and, you know, two or three takes, and then we can move on. Um, but, yeah, like, four weeks is, is kind of the standard for a lot of low-budget films as well. Um, you know, still a long time. I mean, hey, Lord of Tears, our first film, uh, was only shot in 13 days, though. So That's and, impressive. That is very yeah. impressive. I mean, about, I must be about a third of that movie was shot in one take because we were so pressed for time that I had to feel, okay, I think that's good enough or that we'll maybe have coverage um, so we could edit it. I mean, I, I edit our films as well, so it helps when I'm directing because I can kind of, I'm thinking along the way that it could be assembled like this or that, you know. 
That's very um, cool. A film like The Black Gloves, though, is like, you know, maybe four and a half weeks that we were on production. And you can tell with the extra money and the extra time how that affects the production value and so forth. Damn. <laughs> I'm still impressed with 13 days. I was like, whoa. <laughs> That's really well done for 13 days. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, there's some 13 days going on in here today. <laughs> That's for sure. Uh, well, already, oh, what about say? Like, what? Yeah, here's the fun fact. Don't get me started. Don't get me started, Paul. Hey, you hush your mouth. Um, Wari, um... So here's a fun fact about me. Uh, I was actually born on October 13th, which was a Tuesday, by the way, not a Friday. But I, however, was born on June 13th, which was on Friday the 13th. So that makes you guys like brother and sister then, really? No. <laughs> no. Whoa. <laughs> Well, yeah. y'all might as well come move down south. Y'all be more than welcome. No, he's born in Florida. Well, literally, of course. You know, I mean, you know. No. 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 Uh, Crypto, what's the next question? <laughs> Look, Paul's trying to get away from this, away from this topic. <laughs> That's hilarious. Alright, let's see. Um, when going into the black gloves, did you originally plan to shoot it in black and white? Or would y'all, did y'all plan to do it in color? Mm, I think it was originally, yes, it was always black and white. Um, which is, again, a, a great example of type of film that wouldn't get commercial funding normally um now don't get me wrong there has been uh, some commercial films you know like the artist and stuff like that but if you're talking an independent horror film then uh it can be tougher there's been some like that um the eyes of my mother or a girl walks home alone and things like that so there's, there's been more um black and white horror films recently so so that so there was kind of like that idea that was kind of interesting but Really, I'd always been inspired by films that were produced from the kind of silent era horror films of the 1920s and 30s. Um, and then you've also got film noir as well from the 40s. And these stories really relied, it seems anyway to me, relied a lot more on script and dialogue in particular. And, and, and they had a style and a flair about them. Not necessarily a cheesy style, not anything like that. But something just focused on atmosphere and character that really appealed to me. So you've got films like uh, Sunset Boulevard, which which really like um, uh, Catwoman. Um, but f for me, though, black and white films, British ones such as The Haunting and uh, The Innocence as well, Truman Capote wrote. Um, the gothic film about the the governess that goes to look after the two children, the boy and the girl. If you haven't seen The Innocence, then I totally recommend it. It's like, um, it's pretty much a film Guillermo del Toro cites as an inspiration for whatever he makes, you know, <laughs> even though it has nothing to do with it. He just seems to use it as an excuse to mention it. And um, so anyway, like, you know, it was a real departure. Plus, 
we knew as well that we wanted to explore some pretty um pretty kind of gothic and arty themes i mean you have ballet playing a strong part in it as well and we just thought like this could be a really weird visual film with uh, the ballet swan lake um you've got the kind of main character Odile, who appears when she's behaving as, as a white swan and when she's evil as a black swan and we thought that would be a really cool visual idea to be able to explore in a black and white film as, as well so there's a lot of stuff going on there and um and because we wanted to do it in a period setting as well and set in the 1940s we thought yeah let's let, let's go for it Let's let's try it. I also say um, one film that was probably the biggest influence, in fact, was an early Alfred Hitchcock film called Rebecca, which is a film that has a strong dynamic relationship between a man and two women, like the Black Gloves, um, with the supernatural overtones, drama, betrayal, and twists, and um, and that that's a definitely one worth checking out. So we thought, you know, fuck it, let's bring a film like that bang up to date and then see what folks think. Hmm. Yeah, because um, when me and Tessa first watched it, the first thing we noticed was it was black and white. We're like, oh shit, like, it's, he's actually doing a black and white now instead of color. So this is going to be, this is different already. So that caught our attention right away. Uh, what else you noticed something else. I noticed that quite a few actors from The Lord of Tears and The Unkindness of Ravens were actually in The Black Gloves. And, um, yeah, so you re-brought some... You brought back some of your actors and your actresses from your other films and into this film, which was interesting. Like your, like your female from, uh, The Lord of Tears, you brought back into Black Gloves and you made her into a, a ballet dancer. Which, which I think she originally kind of said she was maybe in World of Tears. It, it had been a while. Crystal would, could probably clarify me on this. Um, Crystal, the, the girl was a, technically a ballerina or something in the World of Tears, right? I think so. Like she was, she was, uh, she was like a dancer or something. Because I remember she was talking about going to France, and she was dancing yeah, around yeah, like, in yeah. the living room. Go ahead, Warren. I mean, we like do dancing in the living room, but um, but yeah, she wasn't. I don't think she was a ballet dancer per se, but we just had this. But she was obviously like a dancer because of, you know she dances. But but Lord of Tears, that scene is so trippy that I'm not going to even try and justify it. Wasn't <laughs> explanation. But in the but in the black gloves though, yeah, she's um, you know she is this once famous ballerina whose career has come to a crashing halt after a disastrous fire in a theater has sent her over the edge. And there she is in this isolated mansion under the care of her one-time coach and quasi-lover slash protector, you don't entirely know, um, until Johnny Come Hero, a psychologist who has guilt of a patient he hasn't managed to save, decides to come and save the day when he detects similarities in the symptoms of the ballerina's illness with a girl whose life he couldn't save. And, and yeah, we have Jamie Scott Gordon back from Duncan's for Ravens and Lord of Tears playing the, psycholo the psychologist, I'm trying to say the word, and um, Alexandra Nicole Hume back as well as the ballerina. But for the first time, we also have uh, Macarena Gomez, and um, she's one of Spain's most popular uh, actresses 
Um, and mostly for TV, but in the indie world, she does really quite extreme horror films. I actually and really liked her. Yeah, she did really good. Yeah, I really liked her. <clears throat> I don't know if you guys remember the Stuart Gordon horror film Dagon at all. That mm-hmm. sounds familiar. With, yeah, yeah, yeah. With the like the fishmen, but she was the high priest in that. Of, of the, or the High Priestess in that, and this was her first English language film, I think, since then, so for about 20 years. Although she'd been in lots of like horror movies and oh, you know, like Spanish language films. So she actually had to remember English again. She hadn't been speaking lots of English for ages, so she had her voice coach and she spent a while working at it. And, um, and of course she's playing the character with the most lines. But no, we were really pleased with her. She was—I mean, she was amazing to work with. Yeah, you—the behind the scenes definitely showed her um, her passion for the film too. When she was uh, thanking all you guys and stuff, I thought that was a pretty, pretty nice little moment. Well, yeah, I mean, and also um, uh, Guillermo del Toro is a, is a fan of hers as well, and he tweeted about our film largely because she was in it. You know, you know, he said that she's always mesmerizing to watch, and, and she, 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 that kind of slightly intense, crazy energy that she has is what she always brings to her characters. Like she's something else. Um, she's also pretty extreme and amazing in person. Um, but yeah, she really helped her film like a lot. Um, that's awesome. Like, um, I think I was uh, reading it was either something of you or somebody else uh, mentioned something about like um, like you guys know how to work with with great people and finding like the, the great people to work with the like, best matches for the your, mes- yeah the best matches yeah so I know that's not a question on here but how do you how do you come up with who does what like wh- like your best you mean like for the casting? Yeah, for the casting. It's actually... I mean, it's mostly Sarah, really. Um, She's... Because, like most guys, right, I hate to say it, but we'll normally cast the girl we think is the hottest, you know, (laughs) and we'll we'll, we'll delude ourselves into thinking we're picking the most sophisticated performer, but really, guys, we see in black and white, it's like, yeah, she was really good, you know? Um, Sarah, she's really good at uh, not just detecting who has the quirky qualities or unique qualities, but she's good at finding people as well. And um, a lot of people like will work with us as well because Sarah's record as a writer is is, is really good. She's um, she's written for she's written scripts and, and plays that have been performed by. Uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Channing Tatum and Gary Oldman and Hathaway, all this kind of stuff. So she does like stuff with them, and then she'll work with with us on these low-budget horror fantasy features, and it, it lends her writing and her opinions a pedigree, which really really helps. As for crew, these are mostly our friends. Um, I mean, and every film there's new friends that join us, you know, on our on our team. Um, and we're always open to folks getting involved with what we're doing, but there's a real loyalty and friendship that forms the foundation to our company's success. I like that. I like it. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're, you're a part of that as well. I mean, the folks that support us, they're part of our company and part of this, this team. 
because it's only together that we managed to achieve these things, not just me or just the people shooting the films. If you don't buy a Blu-ray, if folks don't put the word out or they don't be part of this mission that we have to try and make weird, different horror films, it's, it's all for nothing. I mean, it's, it's interesting because, you know, a lot of people get crews or whatever and they're like just random people, but having a whole group of friends come together and be like, let's do a horror movie. That's cool. And to get your friends to join. I, like, I would love to do that. Have a bunch of friends and be like, hey, let's make a horror film. Hey, me in. and all my friends. Let's do I'm, it. I'm down for it. Let's do it. Let's yeah. Do it. Well, I mean, um, I mean you know, and you'd be welcome. The thing is, with, um, I mean, I've worked as a freelancer on films, and you'll see crew, and it's not that they're miserable just because they're not a group of friends, but there's definitely a difference um, when our crews are going on a, on a film and you're, you know, making a big convoy of cars and trucks and they're loading up the gear, and they're just so happy. It's like they're on a vacation, you know, even though they're going to be working insane hours and everything. Because it's, because there is that, that history there, um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's like you guys with, with your podcast as well. I mean, you guys obviously love each other, have each other's backs, and you're building something cool together, you know? That's what exactly. it's all got to be about. That's what we're trying to do. Yeah, why we do Just letting you know, Tess, when we make our movie, Paul's a damsel in distress. Okay. <laughs> I mean, Put him in a way. Will, a damsel in distress. We'll make him a beautiful woman and make him the damsel in distress in our horror film. <laughs> I'll come and save you, babe. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, boy. We love you, babe. You keep being like, you know, a character in Lord of Tears, then, really, is what we're going to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, then. Where do I sign up, then, Wari? Um. <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah, I think you got the next one. Uh, Number eight. Was uh, this the beginning of the Owl Man, and is that why he didn't speak in the in this film, like in Black Glove? Was that the beginning of um, the Owl Man? Was like that to like his entry film? I guess was that why he yeah, didn't talk that it's, much? It's, yeah. Um. So. Uh, the rules are always such an important thing for the villains. You know, you think of like, okay, what is the how does this work with them, you know? Um, and I think with the black gloves, it does represent an owl man that is still finding his own evil voice. <laughs> so he I mean, this may sound a little scary. bizarre, but the general idea, right, in terms of the, the mythology of the owl man is that it's a god that has just managed to survive the collapse of its religion from a civilization in North Africa. This is in terms of the history. In history, the god that Moloch depicts, Moloch, was worshipped by the Carthaginian civilization. So we like to imagine that when that civilization collapsed, uh, circa about um, 280 BC, that what if some remnants of that belief had survived and even prospered among pagans in the northern hinterlands of Scotland, as if some old dudes, you know, carried their stone tablets all the way from North Africa to there. And that over the centuries and even millennia that have passed, um, this shrine or this presence where the god ended up 
might have grown in power. And it's funny enough, it's just kind of reminded me, it's referenced in Lord of Tears, but there was a cult in uh, pagan Scotland that worshipped the idea of wish fulfillment, well, being getting wishes and even immortality through cutting off heads and, you know, sticking them on yucky things and rocks. It wasn't that sophisticated, but it tied in with the idea of our owl as well. So we thought, yeah, okay. So the black gloves, yeah, we've got the owl man is more like a kind of visual form that's coming into consciousness. And then in Lord of Tears, when it's set laterally, it's like, it's very conscious and it's more interactive um, because this power is coming back. To be honest, I would love eventually to, to do a film set maybe in Pagan Scotland. So you've got lots of naked guys with beards chasing each other with crude axes and there's the owl man in full power, you know, with all these standing stones and things like that. That could be really grisly and really freaky, I think. Supernatural apocalypto, yeah. I'm totally okay with this film. When you said the naked guys with axes, I'm yeah. totally okay with this film. Oh boy. Oh, I'm sorry, Paul. I can't okay. help myself. It's, I know. I, I, that's why. That's why I welcomed you aboard to this mission today. <laughs> because I've toned it down out of respect. Well, toned I know. I know. We don't want. You don't want to scare her. I don't want to scare. I don't want to scare away, Lori. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I can get weird really fast. <laughs> I mean, you should see my web history. You know. I mean, we will have more Owlman films eventually, and we love Owlman stories. Um, in the, I mean, in the creepy pasta type stories we've written for the Owlman, there's quite a lot of those in the extras for the Black Gloves and yeah, the Lord of Tears special those. edition, and there will be more in the. Uh, creepypasta series of original stories that we create for our YouTube channel, which is the Never Sleep Again series. And so there's going to be lots of Owlman. We quite like the idea of like a kind of Owlman occult book that has the rules and spells and all this kind of really cool stuff that we actually take from ancient religion, but we can kind of represent with cool artwork and designs and stuff like that. So, so if you're a fan of the Owlman, yeah. There's, there's maybe a lot more to him. And there'll always be that, that slight difference about him as well in every film. So, for example, like, maybe he'll have a different voice or a diff slightly different way. Not enough, not, diff not so different that it makes him suck, but different enough that you get the idea that this is a multifaceted god that can come at you from angles you don't quite expect. Because this is the thing. Ultimately, he is a puppet master and a seducer. And so there's something, you know, ever-changing about him. Mm -hmm. I look forward to it. I think it'd be interesting. It would be. It'd be definitely interesting to see more Owlman. I agree. And I bet that's probably one thing people have been wanting to know too, Warry, would when would the next Owlman appear in, in a film, probably, too. Um, or if not, then I'll be surprised. Maybe... Maybe they wanted more pranks or something, which you ended up doing, which we ended up watching your pranks too with the new ones. Oh man, those were pretty those, interesting. <laughs> if you think the films are hard to make, the pranks are massively hard to make. 
Um, and so I don't do them all the time. So, so many people think, um, oops, uh, so many people, um, oops, yeah. sorry, my phone was just going strange there for a second. Um, so many people think that the pranks are like, you could just shoot them every week, you know, it's just a camera, but it's actually it's a huge amount of like setups elaborate you know like trying to like create these situations where people will have reasons to go places like the electrician and everything like that there's all the failures as well which we're thinking about putting on videos as well but we thought yeah if you do like funny videos with all the times the pranks go wrong then maybe you're taking away from this cool kind of almost role-playing aspect that people get from like seeing the old man get people you know seeing like the guy in the old man costume crash into a wall or a scare going wrong might just take away from when it's really cool and it works. So, so we will do them. In terms of an Elman movie, um, well, funnily enough, we are going to be announcing um, our next movie on the 3rd of April, um, but that won't be an Elman movie. Uh, that'll be a new universe. Um, and we do have, but we do have other films that we will be trying to get developed and financed. Um, um, which includes another villain, which is a, a creature or an entity that I really look forward to. <laughs> oh, oh, Pop, Pop wanted to put her two cents in. Yeah, Pop wanted to say something. I don't know what I don't know what Pop is saying, but she's saying something. Intruder or something. I don't know who's home. So basically, um, after uh, the next two movies, one that we have in post-production that we'll be doing a Kickstarter for on the 3rd of April, and another I'll one that we will be shooting later this year, um, we'll probably, probably then look to do an Owlman film to, shoot in the, to start shooting in 2019. Uh, wait, 2018 or 2019? Um, so basically we have <laughs> we have two films, one that we're shooting and yep. one that's in post this year yep. and then a third film and that's what we'll be shooting in 2019 and that will most likely be a new Owlman movie. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Alright, wait. Yeah. Oh, we know people we, <laughs> uh, we yeah. know people love the Owlman and we love the Owlman as well. Um, but it's also cool as well to look at new villains that you can introduce to people as well because we love the idea of creating all these different kinds of horror legends and creepy things so we'll try out things as well well one thing with the black glove too is uh you made an correct me if i'm wrong too but you made a owl man book and an owl man figure correct yes so um i want the Good one getting the book, I think. But um, <laughs> but yes, the figure shouldn't be a problem. But um, yeah. So so for people like us uh, that didn't have a chance to get the Owlman book, are is there a possibility for like people like us to still get a chance to get our hands on an Owlman book, or was that just for Kickstarter? I, th I mean, the thing is, is that there's a slight possibility, but these Owlman books were like really expensive awards, so they're not for everyone. Um, they're just for rich people. <laughs> rich people. <laughs> Basically, um, what happened with the books, right, was, so with every Owlman book, what, what folks on Kickstarter got was a story written about the Owlman featuring them or people they know 
and the story written by Sarah Daly, the writer of Black Gloves and Lord of Tears personally. Then Michael, um, who works with us, he's a like an expert calligrapher. So he, he does like like old writing with quill pens and stuff, and he knows these old techniques. So he's write, he writes the story in hand with these quill pens, and then it's you know, put in a leather book with the Owlman occult symbols etched on the leather. And oh, as a reward... I have mad that, respect for that. That is so yeah. cool. That sounds absolutely amazing. Oh my god, I'm so mad I missed this. Why can't I be rich? I know, yeah, right? right? I mean, we, we sold those for basically about $300, I think, each on Kickstarter. Um, and they were really time-consuming to make. Like, they're the kind of thing that you really only break even, <laughs> even though it seems so expensive. It would be different if you had, like, maybe 100 slaves building them in some province. You know, <laughs> it's like, but it's just like, you know. Um, and the Elman action figures are a little bit like that. Um, we have, I think we have, like, about... I'll have to double-check. I think it's, like, the last few that remain are in a vault. You know, it's like... Um, but these are ha basically handmade. I mean, this one poor dude having to carve all these Owlman heads and hands. Gavin is his name, and he is a sad man inside after all the ones that he made. We're actually, we are looking at solutions for trying to get more figures made, because we do like figures, but we just need to come up with a better plan than this one poor guy in a cave making them for like ages and ages and hopefully maybe that could then allow them to be cheaper as well because those are quite expensive um treats as well at the moment we sell those figures for about 60 dollars and they each and they come with like a you know a certificate of authenticity that we sign and we try and make it we basically try and make it special because it's, it's special because they've been handmade anyway but it's just because they're expensive you know but that's that's part of the experience I think is to make all, everything special and different with our, with the stuff we create because when you make these stories and these monsters it's actually a, a lot more than just the movie you know the extras are just as important to us as the movie the packaging is just as important as the movie and the figures and everything else because really what excites us about the films is that they're a little window into imagination into some cool thing and so it all has to be cool if it's authentically part of that that universe and that idea. Speaking of the uh, design way out there, uh, Laurie, uh, nine panel layout for your uh, special editions uh, for what you do with the Blu-ray, DVD, and soundtracks. Um, do you? So, the, so this question is: Do you design the layout for your film, uh, for your films, or do you have somebody else do it? It's, it's me. Yeah. Do you pretty much just do everything? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, my main jobs are raising finance for the films, directing, and editing, uh, and doing graphic design work. Um, and Sarah will do um, just as much, you know, but different things. Um, to be honest, it's just like, well, see, most people would try and just have a career. So they might just want to be a director or they might just want to be a producer. The unfortunate reality for the film industry is that, well, it's very much the case that you can't have your cake and eat it unless you're prepared to do a million jobs, you know? 
So for example, um, I've had freelance jobs as a producer or sometimes as a director. And so face, not for feature films, but, um, but as a producer for feature films. And um, you get a fee, but you don't get to do this, or you don't get to do that. If I wanted to make horror films with original stories and like how we're doing, there's no way I could do it. Um, if I was just wanting to be a director, um, if I was just wanting to be a director, then I would have to basically send my CV and hope to try or fight to try and get the job, say, directing the new, say, the new Hellraiser film or the new this, that film. And other producers would uh, make big creative decisions that could have big consequences for my reputation. So, for example, they might change the ending, re-edit it, do, do or whatever. There's so much loss of control. The, the film industry is it's a beautiful thing and it's also a horrible thing. And for people that do want careers in the industry proper, as it were, then they're willing to make massive sacrifices that for people who work as independent filmmakers are usually not prepared to give. Normally because the reason they're getting into film is that exciting idea of being able to use your imagination to tell a story, not just tell a facet of a story that might be managed by business people primarily. Makes sense. It, it definitely makes sense. Well, it does. It's, it's actually the reason why you'll see a lot of directors that their first or second films, you think like, wow, that was shit hot. Why did they get lame on the third film when they had five times the money? Or do you know what I mean? And their careers break, appear to break through. And it's because they're no longer getting to call the shots. It's as simple as that. Yep. And so our company is based on a model of sustainability. We're trying to have a budget and, a, and an audience base and an investor base that allows us to continue producing films that are completely independent creatively and at the same time can pay you know, for themselves and for people and for you guys to get cool stuff. Otherwise, you would just have to kind of make jump scare PG-13 films or whatever the flavor of the month is. Yeah. We have enough of those already. Yeah, we do. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 yeah. and you know what? Sometimes I enjoy those, but it's like, you know, as you know, sometimes I'll be like, oh, okay, cool, an insidious film, I'll watch that, you know. Um, but if it's just that, if that's your only option, then it's like, oh, shit. You know, what, why is the, where are all the other indie filmmakers? Ah, you know, they're... They're working in the rotisserie in Ralph's or whatever, you know, I don't know, but <laughs> and I love the rotisserie at the Ralph supermarket. <laughs> That's great. But still. <laughs> and it seems like nowadays that's what all horror is a lot of. It's a lot of jump like the cheesy jump scares, you know it's gonna happen. There's I appreciate indie films because you have so much more storytelling in indie horror films than you do mainstream horror films because they're not whitewashed like mainstream horror is. You have more leeway. You can add more flavor and more character to it as far as mainstream, like, I don't know how many Nightmare on Elm Street, the remake of Nightmare on Elm Street, put that way. That was a we disaster. We don't talk about that film. You know, no, that was terrible, you know? So, I mean... I can definitely appreciate you guys with the indie films because you bring flavor to the horror community that we don't get to very see very often. Oh, well, thanks very much. It's, and that's it's, it's why we exist is, is to try and be like that. And um, 
And you know, there's complex but quite simple at heart commercial reasons why films get made the way they are theatrically. You know, like PG-13 films are the most commercial, blah de blah de blah de blah blah You know, is this why they do it? They're operating at a level where they can't, they need to make a lot more money back than what you could do with an independent film, hence why they do it. And it can suck sometimes when older intellectual properties are bought up and then put through that system where they come out on the other end is this kind of really weak, lame, kind of like corporate thing. You know, I mean, but hey, who knows? Uh, what company do you use for your um, for your film collector's editions? Like, who makes the... Uh... My, yeah, I mean, from manufacturing, we use disc makers. Never even heard of them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're, they're okay. I mean, there's lots of manufacturers. Uh, to choose from, I mean, we use them because they've done generally a, a good job. Um, but yeah, yeah, I, I mean, know. for yeah, that's pretty much it, really. All right, cool. Um, I can't get too philosophical about manufacturing <laughs> orders, it just is okay. <laughs> I just like that, just okay. Okay, well, I think they do a pretty good job because you don't really see, um, those type of pant like your films uh, cases, you don't really see that many around here in America, really. That fold out and uh, stuff. I see, right. Well, I mean, we're big believers in physical media. Um, now, the reason is because, I, as well, one is because they're kind of pretty and they're cool and they look nice, and you get to show your friends them. I mean, the kind of dream that most horror fans have, at least I did. Uh, was to try and recreate the best horror section of any VHS re rental store you went to at home. Oh, man. Now, of course, that experience is a bit different now for younger folks because then they don't have the experience of going to VHS rental stores. But the idea of collecting things and having, like, objects that really express your passion and your interest in particular films and companies and or studios or filmmakers you know that that counts for something and i don't think that video on demand gives you that feeling you can't show someone a bunch of files and say this is my collection of you know giallo italian slashers from the 70s that i think are really cool you know but at the same time um for film distributors it means that they can't just put films on a DVD and that makes them special either. Um, for us, the idea has to be that the product, if we have to call it that, really expresses the love and passion that the artists have for the film they've made and also for everything about it. So with our packages, the reason they're like, uh, you know, eight panel digipacks is because it gives us a chance to put enough artwork and to create what feels like a tome that is almost like an old book that you could put on your shelf. And then um, one of the reasons we have the Roman numerals on the spines as well um, is so you can feel like you're building that collection. So you've got your one, two, and three on the back. And I feel like when I'm an old dude and um, like enough parted from this mortal coil, then it gives me a kind of pleasure to think that hopefully there's some fans that might have a whole pile of these movies. <laughs> Maybe I make like 20 or what, 30 or whatever, 
you know, all with the like spine art and spine on. Uh, so yeah, and even when Blu-rays do come out of fashion, um, I think we'll still make really pretty physical objects that people can collect and keep um, to, and find ways to present our films through that rather than only through video on demand. Yeah, which video on demand has um, seemed to have changed a lot with you guys, especially now with like, like you said it too, with Amazon, uh, your films are on Amazon. You, I remember you posting something about uh, Amazon royalties now and stuff, which uh, that kind of sucks for you guys being indie too, because now, like you said, or yeah, you said it in a post, I believe, where you were mentioning about uh, how Amazon now, you're not going to get so much, or, yeah, you ain't going to get back as much as you used to, so it kind of makes it much more harder for an indie indie film uh, person. Well, I mean, it's like a whole other subject, but, like, to put it very simply, um distribution for independent films and making money is always very difficult and even for studio films the price or the business model isn't always sales driven it's based on a lot of complex weird ways of making money back sometimes through uh, tax schemes structures everything like that and the problem is, is that when sales revenues become even more difficult to come by, it means that films will become more and more weird in the way they try and get themselves funded. And that will lead to less films um, and less filmmakers. But I guess anyone can figure that if, for example, Amazon reduced their royalties by 60%, which is what they've done for independent filmmakers, um, well, then, you know, that's going to hit the bottom line. Um, if you're an indie filmmaker that sells your film for, say, 2000 bucks a month, it's a lot of money, but suddenly it's going to be just $800 a month, all because of a little email from Amazon, you know, because they decided to change their minds. Um, now, for companies like ours and for other distributors, we will use a variety of platforms. Um, but what's happened in recent times is that a lot of companies have become quite dependent on Amazon because their platform was particularly accessible and easy to use and reached a lot of customers. Um, for example, getting a movie on iTunes costs like a thousand bucks. Putting it on Amazon costs virtually nothing, you know? So they've all been hit. Um, we make most of our money through selling uh, the physical products. So video on demand is, is actually a growing part of our business. But the royalty change has affected us in that it's just slowed that rate of growth through that particular form of revenue quite a bit. But, you know, the, the toughest part will actually be how it impacts filmmakers because it means that the distributors will not be able to offer filmmakers and that's pretty bad because the deals they were offering filmmakers really bad. So, um, but 
because it's so tough or weird or complicated, you almost don't want to go into it too much because it's actually better if you're an indie filmmaker not to know all this stuff first and to learn it bit by bit because if if you knew all the hard bits right away without all the fun bits that you experience when you're trying to make a film and trying to figure out things out, then you just wouldn't do it. You'd think it was hopeless. And of course it's not. Let's see, well, question 12. Let's see. How can other filmmakers be a part of Hex Media? Oh, no. That one. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, the best way for filmmakers to become a part of Hex Media is for them to have secured lots of fine funding already for their project and be like, hey, if you guys have some money as well, then we could all make money. Um, <laughs> But um, that's for feature films. If what they have, if what they want to do though is um, just make things, um, which is cool, then actually we do have these feature-length anthology projects that we're developing. Uh, one of them is a feature film called For We Are Many, which is just about finished now for submissions. But we will be opening new submissions for a new For We Are Many, which will be For We Are Many too, and. Um, and filmmakers can produce short films uh, that will be come part of this feature-length anthology, uh, which itself will be sold as a feature film, and and will have a cool wraparound with a uh, about like a crypt keeper type guy, probably played by somebody. Um, we're not quite sure yet who we're getting, but we were thinking of somebody like Doug Bradley from like Pinhead, Hellraiser, you know that kind. What? Please do! Oh my God! I mean, we love anthology uh, films. We, they're lots of fun. You know, you got ABCs of Death and stuff like that. And sure, the experience of watching them can be like, I loved that one, I hated that one, I loved that one. So that's always been the case with anthologies. But we think for people that are interested in filmmaking, um, it gives us a chance to work with them as producers whilst they shoot their short film from wherever they're from and and lets us produce a cool product at the end of it. So Forware Mini is a feature film from our studio that will be finished this year um, that will show about 18 short films that have all been produced based on the idea of demons and occultism. Okay, I'm looking forward to that because I love anthology movies. I've seen both ABCs or Death, everything on Netflix, as an anthology, I have the, I have the Tales of the Crypt DVD collection. So, I mean, I love stuff like that. I think they're fun to watch with friends as well because you get to talk about the shorts and and it's, it's a different kind of experience than watching a feature film. But if you're a filmmaker out there watching this and you're interested in getting involved with what we're doing, um, then you can email us about getting involved with the anthologies at info at hexmedia.tv and um and we could let you know but what isn't useful to us is really people who might email us about um, a script or an idea that they have for a feature film because funnily enough you guys would already have great ideas for horror films i'll have great ideas for horror films good ideas isn't actually as uncommon as you would think it's the ability to implement ideas with you know resources money and connections that are the hard part. So for anyone that's got an idea that wants to get in touch, they should try and get some people on board first. It's called, we call it an industry, developing a package, which traditionally would be a shit-hot script, a shit-hot director, a shit-hot writer, and a shit-hot name. All people willing to say, okay, I'll do it if you get the money. Then once you have that package, you know, someone with money will be like, well, yeah, that's, you know, done deal. These guys are great. 
I know them, you know. I like that. Yeah, I just remember you mentioning something about uh, that for We Are Many and um, about how people can, who are filmmakers, can submit their work to help out that project and stuff like that. So um, I did. So I just figured um, to throw something like that in because you don't really hear too much anymore about other. Um, companies I'll say for the lack of a better term um, trying to reach out to other filmmakers that much anymore like ABC to death yes but those are some weird ass tales I'll, I'll admit it too like like the dildos the, oh, the Nazi dildo one or like that one or like how about F is for fart um, yeah that oh, D is for duck or whatever it was yeah. Well, with um, with APCs, um, they gave their filmmakers quite a lot of free reign. Um, yeah, they did. And, but I think with what we've done, um, myself and some other producers, Alex Harron and Thomas Staunton, friends of mine, um, we've helped to develop the ideas with the filmmakers. I mean, they take credit for their stories, their imagination and everything, but what we'll do is we have a curation process so that if it's totally shit, it doesn't end up in the feature films, basically. Yep. That's the polite way of putting it. <laughs> yeah. You had at, at least let one or two shitty ones slide through. So they're like, oh, that one, that one was good. That was a little weird. But that one was really good. You got at least like one or two slides. Well, you, you, you need to have like a real mix. I mean, like, um, and you're, so you're totally right. You want sometimes it's, like with ours, we have some that are, they're like they've got amazing practical effects they're gory they're they're almost from like Daria Argento's produced demons type film or evil dead type stuff and then you'll have other ones that are more a bit more psychological but saying that though there's not any shorts in that anthology that are particularly like slow like I don't think anthologies work as well with that kind of stuff it's better for features really um, but in other words, anyway, you've got some stuff where it's like gory, monstery demons and other stuff that's like freaky, kind of inside your head type shit. And so there's a nice mix of, of, of entries in that respect. So what we'll do is when we're curating is, say, if, for example, too many people come with the same idea, like, oh, I've, you know, like three short films about exorcisms. There's only so many times you can watch, you know, priests, you know, exercising a demon in an anthology. Um, and so within in that case we can say okay we'll pick the best one and say to the other two guys come back but with something different because we've already ticked that box that makes sense because I'm not going to lie I've had a, one exorcism is enough three is a crowd yeah it's too many with the anthology it's cool because it means that the demonic shorts we have are totally weird as hell because the thing is, and then freaky and brilliant original monsters and really weird demons because everyone comes at first with okay i've got this guy who's possessed by demons so it's always a girl really so this possessed girl it's like the drop off from after possessed girl to like what the fuck do i do now about my demon story <laughs> now everything's like a demon and it's weird as hell and it's brilliant so when you're watching it you've got a real variety of like demonic entities to encounter and these like um the films are about six minutes each so none of them are about or too long 
So if you don't like one, at least you know it won't last that long. <laughs> <laughs> I look forward to it. Like I said, I love the anthology films. I think they're great. Even the really stupid weird ones, they all seem to, they make sense because it's all short stories. It's, you know, everyone's imagination, it's different viewpoints. So whether they be super shitty or really good, I like them. Totally. I mean, our next, our actual next feature film, the one that we're doing a Kickstarter for on the 3rd of April, um, that, um, I can't give too much details about it yet, but to give a rough idea, though, um, it's something that's almost like Mario Bava Argento-esque. If, you know, The Black Gloves was black and white, this is a film that is, this new one is filled with colour and sensuality as well. But it has a pitch black heart. It's a really, it's one of the most, I would say, disturbing, creepy, and twisted films you'll see that looks beautiful on the outside, but is so dark and debauched and decadent on the inside. Um, if you like creepy things, cursed objects, and this kind of stuff, it's very much like that. And I look forward to, to sharing that idea with the world. But I think this could be our best one yet. And it's also one of our biggest uh, and most ambitious films we've attempted because it has scenes that are set in the 1700s, you know, big houses and powder wigs and everything like that, um, as well as the present day. And, um, and I mean, like I say, some of it is really quite dark. It, it, takes, it will take the audience in places morally when they're watching it that will really test them with the kind of what would I do in that situation type thing. Hmm. I look forward to it. I look forward to it. I hope everyone listening to this is looking forward to it too. Yeah. That sounds really good. Just remember, April 3rd, get your asses on Kickstarter and wait for... Support. Support it. And I can tell you as well, um, there's one one little tidbit that it does also star your favorite bearded actor, James oh my see oh well <laughs> April 3rd I'm going to Kickstarter <laughs> number one like, supporter right here like, I'm sold <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. you should see his interview in the extras for the black gloves it's completely insane completely insane if you go to the interviews in the black gloves extras his is the most surreal interview you will ever see in your life yeah. I'm going I'm I'm to have to buy the Black Gloves DVD just so I can watch. I haven't, because I haven't got to see the Black film. You might have drunk in his interview. I'm not sure. As it was so mad, and I was like looking at the material um, my colleague gave me when he edited the interview, and I was like, is this the joke interview? Like, what is this stuff? It's totally crazy. It's like, it doesn't answer any question, but it's just filled with insane jokes and impressions. But honestly, I don't think I've seen anything funnier and, and weirder in my life than this guy's interview, so I'll stay then. That's awesome. I have, I have to watch his interview now. Yeah, that interview was something. <laughs> I was laughing and just having a grand old time, just like, oh my god. I don't know if I could take this guy serious or what's going on. <laughs> yeah, that interview, oh boy. It looked like you had a lot of fun with it, though, so that's what counts. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm quite intense during the shoots. I mean, I'm a bit like some kind of like, like, like 
some kind of like Middle Eastern dictator or something like that. Um, but I'm, but I'm kind of, but, but I can be fun. Yes, of course I can be fun. <laughs> <laughs> like wait, the authoritarian father you never knew you had. <laughs> oh boy. Oh, oh So uh, we got one more question, Laurie, and I know you kind of said it already, but um, maybe I'll just switch it up a little bit or add a stump into it. But So the last question is, what can we expect from Hex Media in the future, and where can we keep up to date with everything Hex Media? Cool. Well, um, the best way is, I mean, anyone listening, if they want to keep up to date, most of all, then they can actually just add me on Facebook, Laurie Brewster. I mean, I'm always happy to have horror fans like myself on Facebook. I use Facebook really for like keeping up to date with horror and fantasy rather than for anything else you know most people post about politics or their babies but i like to to kind of just see like what fans are thinking and talking about and and if they want to say hi to me they can do that on, on facebook um there's also our website at w.hexmedia.tv uh, they can sign up for our newsletter where we sometimes give discount codes and goodies on that um, also, our YouTube channel, which is uh, Hex Studios, if they type that in, you'll find that. You can subscribe to our videos. Um, we also have a Patreon page as well, or Patreon page, um, which gives weird goodies and and strange things for folks that are getting involved with our channel, which is something that we're really keen on expanding this year as well. So that's how they can get in touch with me. But in terms of what is coming next, um, well, we've got the release for the Black Gloves. Uh, we have our Kickstarter for our next film on the 3rd of April, which would be released in the same year. So, heck, you're, you're going to get two Hex Studios films this year. In fact, if you count the anthology, actually, that's three. You know, the Black Gloves, this new one, and um, the anthology. So that's a lot. But on the YouTube channel especially, um, we're looking at developing new content. So there'll be Never Sleep Again, which is our creepypasta series. Uh, there's Hex Arcana, which is our documentary kind of occult series. And hopefully we'll be doing some, well, it'll be more pranks and some, hopefully eventually a web series, if we're lucky, if we can get some support for that, which would be an Owlman-based web series. So those are the main projects that we're working on at the moment. Sweet. That's that's pretty cool. So y'all going like the Elman series? Is it going to be like Marble Hornets, like how the Slenderman series was? Well, you know, Marble Hornets is like the the inspiration, really. Um, I watched uh, Marble Hornets. I checked it out. Um, and I really enjoyed. Like I did, I've not seen every episode. I watched like about forty episodes. So, and what I liked about it was how stripped back the filmmaking was and how it allowed you to kind of explore the idea of a mythology with the character, that the operator, um, as they had it in Marble Hornets. Um, I'm not sure yet if the, the Owlman type web series would be as stripped back, if we might not make it a little bit more conventional, a bit more polished. But at the same time, though, I also know that for a web series that we probably wouldn't have the time to make it like you know the standard of the feature films right. so maybe having this kind of like 
maybe not quite found footage, but kind of quasi-found footage, like half that, and then maybe sometimes it lets you kind of see more from like a more conventional kind of cinematography. In fact, a lot of modern found footage horror films have been kind of doing that way. They're mostly found footage, but they kind of subtly some go into an angle that isn't being covered by the camera that is supposed yeah. to be getting everything. So it might be a bit like that. But I would, I would love, I'd love to see that though. I'd be um, really interested in watching that because I love the Marble Hornets. I've watched all those videos, so I'd definitely be interested in seeing an owl man like that. Yeah, well, I mean, I, me as well, and I'm a fan of the creepy pasta stuff as well. And I think that's the kind of angle we'd be exploring. This is a man after my own heart, right here. You are a man after my own heart. I have, if you have an address for to send you something, <laughs> I have something to send you that you would absolutely love. Yeah, yeah, so, please do. No, please do. Yeah, just send to Paul or send to me. You're at, like a mailing address. I can ship you something, and I got something I can ship you that you'd like. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, just say hi to me on Facebook, and I'll get you our, our address. Okay. But I hope it's not going to be like that set of restroom photographs that Paul sent me because those. I got plenty of those. I don't think you need more, but I mean, I got a whole folder like this big. You just don't stop sending them to me. I'm like, Paul, enough. I have plenty. I can post from my whole living room wall with those pictures. It's the thought that counts, though, Paul. It's the thought that counts. I mean, you helped me keep the neighbors away, so I appreciate it. They see them pictures and they just walk out the door. Well, good. I'm glad. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Is there anything um, that you, we didn't ask that you wanted to ask, Wari? Because um, I know you said you were going to... I think I think we pretty much covered it because, like, we asked about the PTSD, like, if they worked with people that had PTSD with um, the unkindness of ravens, which was uh, was one of the big questions I was gonna ask. And pretty much how he got, became the Owlman, like how he got the story for the Owlman. So, I mean, that's about it. Y'all pretty much covered the questions I wanted to ask. See, great mind think alike. So. Good. Well, thanks guys, it's been a total pleasure. Well, it's been a pleasure with you, Ari. And um, before you go, we would like you to join us on the finale of finishing this uh, interview with... Cause now you're breaking up super bad. Stay scary. Stay scary. Oh. Oh. Stay yes. scary. <laughs> Three, two, one. Stay, Stay scary. scary. <laughs>